0: Welcome everybody, thank you for uh, warming us up and getting us ready uh, to hear the word and for uh, giving us an opportunity to worship. Uh, it's great to hear just worship resounding and echoing here uh, in this area, I'm uh, just grateful for the opportunity to worship together today. We're in Mark chapter 14, and this is the 44th sermon uh, from the Gospel of Mark. We're taking our time working through passage by passage, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse. And it's our desire that uh, as we behold the Word of God, that it, which endures forever, will challenge you and will change you and will strengthen you and will cause you to become more and more like Jesus. Today we're looking at the passage that we skipped last week, verses 22 through 26. We talked about uh, the disciples, uh, the apostles, and last week uh, we read how Jesus predicted the betrayal by Judas. And then after the paragraph about the Lord's Supper that we're going to cover today, Jesus told the other Apostles, after Judas the betrayer, after Satan had entered him and he had left the room, then Jesus, according to the Gospel of Mark, uh, described how all of the disciples were about to fall away. And so we talked about the difference between betraying Jesus and falling away from Jesus. And it's no accident that the Holy Spirit caused John Mark to record for us the order in which he did that in between betrayal and in between in between falling away that Jesus would tell his disciples, tell his apostles, that this is my body that I'm giving for you. Somewhat ironic that in the midst of them falling away and in the midst of betrayal that Jesus would still Desire uh, to be with them, that he would still affirm his affection for them, that he would still desire to go to the cross for them in obedience to the Father. I don't know about you, but if someone is a betrayer or if someone is unfaithful or if someone has done something to hurt you, the hardest thing for us as humans to do in that moment is to say, I love you anyway, right? I'm going to sacrifice for you anyway. I'm going I'm to um, die for you anyway. This is what Jesus is saying, that in the midst of betraying, in the midst of Satan betraying Jesus, in the midst of all of his closest friends and apostles falling away from him, Mark records for us that Jesus says in this passage that I'm going to, uh, to give my body and shed my blood for you. Now, in the immediate context, that they're the immediate audience. Jesus is telling them, you're going to betray me, and you're going to fall away, and and I'm still going to give my body, and I'm still going to give my blood for you. Now, it's hard for me to fathom that. If someone does something hurtful to me, painful, if I'm in anguish over something, in my flesh the last thing I feel like doing is, is giving of myself sacrificially but that's what Jesus does. So let's let's pray over this passage and and we're going to look at verses 22 through 26. Uh, but let's pray and ask the Lord's favor and blessing on our time together. Lord, we thank you that we can gather uh, under these trees and in the shade on this day that you have gathered us together, your people called for your purpose. We thank you that we have gathered to hear your word together. We thank you that you, uh, that you use your word in the context of a covenant caring community of Christ followers so that you may shape us and change us and make us more and more like Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that your word outside of community, biblical community, and this context is still powerful, it still endures forever. But for those here, you have called us together on this day for this purpose to hear this word from you. It's my prayer that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open our minds so that we may understand the scriptures, that you would speak to us and through us. We thank you for the enduring nature of your word, that it will be here long after we are not. And it was here long before we were here. So we thank You that it endures forever, the Word of the Lord. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight into this passage, that you would give us discernment. Uh, your word says that the Bereans were more noble than those of Thessalonica. They heard the word and they went and checked it to see if the words were true. Give us that sort of discerning, noble spirit that the Bereans had as we hear your word today. Help us to, um, to listen closely to the Holy Spirit and uh, to examine the word and to examine its context and to hear exactly what you would have us to hear from this passage today. Would you use this message today for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let's read together verses 22 through 26. The passage says that as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink uh, again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives." This is a very well-known event. Uh, It's known as the Last Supper. It's recorded in all of the synoptic Gospels. We talk about synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And synoptic is this Greek word that means through one eye or through one view, soon, and optic, through one view. Uh, All written, all sharing a, a basic body of material. That's why we call them the synoptics. John's Gospel was written much later, and it has a different... Um, body of information, John dedicates five chapters to this upper room discourse, and he doesn't include the Last Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though, they do record it, and the recording of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar. Uh, a handful of verses as we have come to, uh, to break them down, and they all talk about this, the Last Supper. You might be surprised uh, when you hear about the Last Supper. It's a very popular event, uh, very culturally um, popular in in a lot of ways because of movies and TV shows and books and painting. Da Vinci painted a famous painting in the 1400s uh, called The Last Supper. And so it's a very popular, very recognizable event. Uh it's it has some mystery wrapped around it but our our goal today is is to dispel some of those cultural myths the Holy Grail, and things like that. And just to really focus on what the Bible says about this event. It's easy to get confused when you mix all of that cultural nonsense and you lose sight of the purpose of the biblical text. What does this mean? What did it mean for the apostles in the room? What did it mean for the early church? What does it mean for us? How has this endured over the centuries? So let's understand the... Explanation: The understanding of the Last Supper. You might be surprised to learn that there are eight or nine different titles or descriptions of this event. We're just going to focus on a few of them. Uh, some of these names and words and concepts the early church is trying to grasp. What these... Um, Descriptors: what they were feeling, what they were going through, what the Holy Spirit was doing in the early church. And so they would assign a title to different things, to different events, to different ways of understanding. You can probably think of some of these examples. In Acts chapter 9, in describing what we have come to know as Christianity, the apostles in the early church only described it as the way in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, Paul, then Saul, is going and asking for letters to synagogues at Damascus. And the reasoning in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, is so that if he found anybody belonging to the way, he might take them bound to Jerusalem. That's uh, that concept, the way. No doubt based on Jesus' description as I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is how the early Christians would have described this movement that God was doing, as it's something called the way But we read in Acts chapter 11, the term that we understand. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This was a a later development, a couple of decades later into uh, the movement of the early church. The disciples are first called Christians in this new headquarters of Antioch, not Jerusalem. And that name stuck. Obviously, we use it today. Christian is a very uh, is the most popular term to describe our faith in Jesus and what we are as followers of Christ. This name stuck. Peter uses it uh, in first Peter chapter four. And in Acts 26, even King Agrippa says, Paul, are you trying to convince me in such a short amount of time to become a Christian? Fellowship was another word used eight times in the New Testament to describe this new body of Christ followers who are gathering together, called it a fellowship. And the Lord's Supper is no different. It was used as people are trying to describe what this event, what this event, um, what this sacrament what this event meant to them they're trying to describe it in a lot of ways and so we we know it as the last supper in 1st Corinthians 11:20 we know it as the lord's supper we know it as communion in scripture communion having to do with our fellowship with one another and our fellowship with god in acts 2:42 they called it the breaking of bread it's called the lord's table in 1st Corinthians 10:21 It's called the Eucharist, getting its name from the idea of Eucharisto, that is giving thanks or thanksgiving for something as a moment to give thanks. That's from Matthew 26, 27, the giving of thanks. Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks, and so it became known as the Eucharist. It's also called the cup of blessing in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. So we get a lot of ideas about what this Last Supper came to mean to the early Christ followers. It it had a a range of meanings. Anytime you you describe something with adjectives, uh, the the more adjectives you use, oftentimes you're able to pinpoint the range of meaning behind something. And so this event, the Lord's Supper, is no different. Seven different biblical titles, six different biblical titles given to it to describe it in the early church. And even though this is a famous event, and even though this is a biblical event, even though this this is something that you're very familiar with, we, at this congregation, we take the Lord's Supper uh, the first Sunday of the month. Uh, Scripture doesn't describe how often you should take it. Jesus said, as often as you take it, do it in remembrance of me. Scripture doesn't say that we should take it daily. Scripture doesn't say that we should take it weekly. Scripture doesn't say that we should take it monthly or annually. Jesus just leaves it open, saying, as often as you do this, do it in my name. Some, some congregations take it weekly. Some take it annually. Some take it monthly. Some take it during the year. So prescriptively, we don't have a prescribed way in which or a rate at which we should take it. But there are some biblical instructions when we come to the Lord's Supper. And we'll get into those uh, next week as we take the Lord's Supper together. But today we want to just focus on what this might have meant here to the disciples, to the apostles, and what the Holy Spirit led Mark to record in what we know as verses 22 to 26. And the main thing I want to come across to you today, the main point prayerfully that I would like to impress upon you is that there is extreme value in what Jesus describes as the remembrance. I want to cause you to remember. If your faith is struggling, if your uh, spiritual foundations, if your cultural moorings have been rocked, if you're uh, struggling in any way, there is a value, a spiritual attachment, a discipline involved in remembering and remembering Jesus and remembering who he is and remembering what he's done for you and recalling how he has worked individually in your life. The uh, last weekend we had a number of families that stayed for our connection luncheon as a way of introducing them to Ridgeline and to what the Lord has done here. And I had forgotten uh, just all that the Lord had done. I just started to remember that seven years ago we were just a handful of people meeting at the Watsons in their basement, praying, should the Lord lead us to do this? Just Seven or eight years ago there wasn 't even a body of believers. seven or eight years ago, the congregation of Rock Hill Mennonite Church was meeting here on this property in this very room and and many of you were in another location seven or eight years ago and just the act of me remembering uh, I said it would take fifteen minutes for me to kind of give this thing and I found myself maybe thirty minutes later saying, Wow, just all these things i 'd forgotten about this and I 'd forgotten about that there is a There is a a, a spiritual renewal that happens when we recall all that the Lord has done for us. Things that we might have forgotten. Things that you might have let slip from your memory because we're forgetful people. We, we forget how faithful and good and how, uh, how honoring and how blessed we are to walk with Jesus and to walk with God and how he provides for us. And we can allow today's crisis to overshadow yesterday's faithfulness. Have you ever found yourself in crisis lord don't you care lord where are you lord why aren't you answering this prayer why aren't you doing what i hoped you would do and, and and in the midst of that desperate cry for the lord to do something maybe to provide for you or maybe to forgive you or maybe to heal you in the midst of that you tend to forget how faithful he has been over the years and so i want to hopefully impress upon you this discipline this value of remembering. It's a discipline, you might ask. What do you mean a spiritual discipline? I remember things all the time. Well, I think the spiritual discipline of recalling that we'll get to at the end of the message today, I'll show you that it's it can be a discipline and it can be a value. But let's get back into our text and we'll see that here today. In verse 22, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them saying, take, this is my body. He took a cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank of it, all of them. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Keep in mind, Judas is in the room Uh, as he eats the bread, as he takes Jesus's symbolic body, Matthew records for us that Satan enters into him and he leaves the room. Now this is in the context of the Passover feast. Uh, the Passover was this annual feast that they had once a year, and they were to eat it in Jerusalem. And it was prescribed. There were elements involved. They were to eat different things, bitter herbs. They were to eat unleavened bread. It was to be eaten quickly. They were to sacrifice a lamb quickly. They were to do all of this in haste because it it was a part of their Exodus, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And it was a command that they were to eat it annually, at this time together, in remembrance. They were to remember what God did to deliver them. So Jesus isn't introducing something new. Bread and wine was a part of the Passover feast. Matter of fact, they would take four cups and they would each cup would symbolize something they were to remember in the midst of the Passover. But Jesus isn't introducing something new to them. The Lord's Supper isn't necessarily something new as much as it is a fulfillment of what God had been teaching them through the Passover for generations. Jesus isn't repurposing the bread and the wine. He's not taking the elements from the Passover feast and saying, I know it used to mean this, But now it means something different. He is fulfilling the Passover feast. Think about it. Jesus is this Passover lamb who would cause the death angel to pass over whomever the blood was applied to, just as it had been in Exodus in the early days when the the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and God wrought through Moses this amazing deliverance from slavery and from death, you see Jesus, the Passover lamb, all over that. We still describe being in bondage to sin as slavery. And we still describe Jesus' deliverance through the blood applied to us, uh, saving us from death. You read in Revelation that the second death won't harm those to whom the blood of Jesus has been applied to in the same way that those first Israelites would have taken the blood of that sacrificial spotless lamb and they would have applied that blood over the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over them. This is not the first time, even in scripture, that an animal has been used as a substitutional sacrifice, has it? You can think of different places in the Old Testament, in ways in which God has been preparing the people for this moment that Jesus breaks the bread and says, this is my body, You can think of all these times in the Old Testament when there were types and shadows that pointed to this very night, right? You think about Adam and Eve taking the fruit in disobedience and rebellion against God in the garden. And what does God have to do to cover their shame and nakedness and their guilt? An animal had to be sacrificed and he took those skins from that animal and he used it to cover their shame and and nakedness. And this has happened over and over again. Remember Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham and Isaac are climbing up this mountain in the Jerusalem area, right in this very area where Jesus is eating this Lord, this Last Supper with his disciples, and, and Isaac is being laid on the altar. And he says, "Well, what about the what about the real sacrifice?" Where's the sacrifice? And and what does Abraham say? On the hill of the Lord, it shall be provided. And as he lifts his eyes, he sees a ram caught in a thicket. And that animal becomes the substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac. Jesus is not introducing something new here. The disciples don't lose their mind or object to the normal flow of the Passover feast because as Jesus is breaking bread and as he is passing out all these elements and as he's describing the wine and and the sacrifice and the body, all of these things make sense as the fulfillment of the Passover, not something that replaces it. Bread and wine are not new. Back in Genesis 14, Melchizedek, his name means King of Righteousness who reigned in Salem, which was the area of Jerusalem, which means the King of Righteousness reigning in the, as the King of Peace, brings out two elements when Abraham is greeted. He brings out bread and he brings out wine. Do you see how God has been preparing his people? The king of righteousness and the king of peace brings out bread and wine to bless Abraham. And what does Abraham do? He gives to him the sacrifice of a tithe offering. 10% of all of his earnings, all of his wealth he gives to Melchizedek. This is a a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. In Judges 19, there's bread and wine. In Proverbs 9, I learned this week uh, from Cherie, she was reading in Proverbs and she said that wisdom hosts this banquet and serves bread and wine. And wisdom is crying out in the streets, come in and eat bread and drink wine and celebrating this this feast. And yet also, the woman Folly is holding her own banquet and she says, stolen was water is sweet, right? And and she's also trying to serve this bread as well, but it's a counterfeit, the woman folly, but wisdom holds this feast. So if you follow the clues, if you connect all the dots, if you logically think through and walk through the Old Testament, you will see the breadcrumbs that lead to Jesus fulfilling all of the Old Testament in this moment with one snap of of the bread saying, this is my body. I'm the, I'm the Passover lamb. When John sees Jesus after, uh, when he's baptizing, he says look, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover lamb that would have been um, chosen by the high priest, this pure lamb that would have been prepared on this very day to give this Passover lamb for the forgiveness of the sins of the nation, Jesus is saying in this upper room, that's me. And he did it in perfect fulfillment. But look at verse 25. Jesus says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This old tradition, the Passover, Jesus fulfills, and he infuses in it a future event. It was designed to look back, right, on the exodus, on the deliverance from slavery, on the deliverance from Egypt, on God's great passing over of the death angel to give them life, and now Jesus says, now it will be celebrated again in a future event, in Revelation 19:9 9, the angel says to John write this down blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb so what God has been celebrating in humanity in types and shadows and figures in the Old Testament in perfection in Jesus Christ it will be fully realized at a marriage supper Now, if you can't tell, I have a twangy accent at times because I'm from Oklahoma and in Oklahoma, we do weddings different than y'all do here, right? You go to a wedding in Oklahoma, the ceremony might be 45 minutes to an hour. And then when it's over, there's no dinner. They, they just go into a reception room, they cut some cake, they take some pictures, they do all those things, they serve some carrots and they serve some crackers, and they want you out. They want the big party to happen uh, later. They, they want 45 minutes to an hour reception, then they say goodbye, and then there might be a handful of friends and family who stay for, for the party. The first time Julie and I came to a wedding here, We got a babysitter for like an hour (laughs) and we went to the wedding and then we went to the thing afterward and we were surprised that it was going to be like another hour before, before the the wedding reception even started. And then the wedding reception started and it wasn't a reception. There wasn't, they were seating us at a table with like a table place card. And then they started to walk around with like hors d'oeuvres. And then another hour later, they're they're starting to serve a main course. And then there's all these other things that are happening. Five or six hours into this thing, we had to like call the babysitter. I don't know when this is gonna be over. And then the next time, and the next time, and every wedding after that, we started to learn that you guys do weddings a little differently here. And it's probably a little bit more biblical, right? There's something amazing that happens to the bride and the groom at this wedding feast. Before the wedding, I've done 25 or 30 weddings um, as a pastor. And during the premarital counseling and during the lead up, I keep trying to tell them, now listen, you're preparing for a marriage, not a wedding. Mm Premarital counseling prepares you for a marriage, a long commitment together, a long covenant of walking together. And even though I can see the bride, I can say that. I know she's hearing me. She's thinking cake, flowers, dress, guests, you know, lose as much weight. He's thinking, you know, try to lose as much weight. They're all trying to do everything they can to get ready for this event, for this wedding event. But something magical almost kind of happens at the end of this wedding ceremony. They they don't even most of the time they don't even hear what I'm saying to them in the middle of the ceremony. They just can't wait for that moment of the kiss and the introduction, here is your bride and groom and you announce their name and they walk down and they, they're cheering and clapping and they do their dance down the aisle or whatever it is. But something amazing happens in this wedding feast when all the details are over. You look over and you see a bride and you see a groom and they're relaxed. And they're happy, they're feeding each other. It's kind of disgusting how cute they are together. But they're just, they're enjoying the consummation, the climax of all that preparation and they're feasting together. Now listen, Jesus points to a future supper, a future banquet called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb when all of the redeemed of all of the ages all come together and are seated at this great banquet. Now I don't know what the best wedding you've ever been to is. I've been to some big weddings. I've been to some weddings where you're looking around and you're seeing stars and famous people and politicians and NFL players, and I've been to some big kind of weddings like that where it's just expensive, expensive. I mean, they're bringing out hors d'oeuvres that cost more than my wedding costs, right? I mean, they're bringing out um, massive tiered cakes, and it's just a party. When Jesus says the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when he's looking forward to that, take my word for it. This is a wedding banquet feast that you do not want to miss. This won't be a temporary, we got engaged a year ago, and we've been dating for a couple years, kind of wedding. This will be thousands of years of a creator wooing an unfaithful, rebellious people back to himself. A father in this banquet will celebrate a bride who has been purchased with the greatest possible price you could imagine. At this wedding feast, God the Father will present to Jesus the Son us in all our flaws, in all our brokenness, and yet redeemed by the love of God through the love of the Savior. And Jesus is thinking about that future moment in this supper. And just think about how flippantly we take the Lord's Supper sometimes. Jesus took that bread and broke it and said, that's my body. Jesus took that juice, that wine, and said, this fruit of the vine, that's my blood. And I'm using it to purchase you because you mean that much to me, to the Father. Your redemption means that much. He is presenting to the Son. A Father is presenting to the Son a bride. And Jesus looks forward to that day. Revelation nineteen nine, blessed are those who are, are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's a future event that Jesus is looking forward to, the climax of our salvation. And God's redemption will be consummated at that feast. It will be finished. The same sort of relaxed, joy-complete moment when a father of a bride sees his daughter and son married, that sort of moment will be this wedding feast of the Lamb that Jesus is looking forward to. You want to be there. You want to be at that wedding feast. You want to be a part of that marriage supper of the Lamb. Take my word for it. You don't want to miss that banquet. This morning, I want you to hear this in context because in the context of Mark, the paragraph before and the paragraph directly after. The Holy Spirit led Mark to record it in just this way. At this beautiful moment, there's Satan and betrayal. Judas leaves to to double cross Jesus and to sell him out to the religious leaders. And then immediately following his departure, Jesus tells all of his faithful friends, you're going to fall away from me. That was last week's Message, But in the midst of that, Jesus tells them to remember. Luke 22, 19, Jesus says, He took bread when He had given thanks. He broke it and He gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's Jesus' command to remember. And Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 says, Carries this on decades later with the church in Corinth saying when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we take the Lord's Supper, we do it to remember. Jesus told the disciples to remember him when they did this in the midst of their betrayal, in the midst of Judas's betrayal, in the midst of their falling away. Jesus is giving them instruction to remember And that's a big ask, if you think about it. People say and ask for weird things when they're about to die. I had a seminary professor who told a story about a crusty elderly guy in his church that hated him. And this guy just never had a kind word for my friend was always saying things like, now when I die, I don't want you to be there. (laughs) When I die, I don't want you to be at the funeral. I want this guy, our former pastor, to be there because he was a great pastor. And he would say those things to him. And and my friend would say, I understand, I understand. I'll fulfill your wish, I understand. And he was kind to him. and, and, And this guy, after years of saying that, finally passed away. And as providence would have it, the guy said, Uh, the former pastor said, I can't, I can't be there. I already have something scheduled that weekend and no one else could do it. And so my friend had to do his funeral and, and in the midst of having to do his funeral, he was kind of course. And he he went through all these things, but, but this guy in his will said, when I die, I want my dogs to be put down and I want them to be stuffed and I want them all to be buried in my casket with me. What a weird request, right? And so at, at his request, his uh, family had all of his dogs put down and arranged in the casket and, and buried with him. And my friend said uh, when, they were, when everyone had left, when they were about to lower the casket, uh, I'm sorry, when everyone had left and they were about to close the casket, he took one of those dogs and he put its little rear right on that guy's chest to his face and shut the casket and told the, uh, the undertaker, don't say a word. <laughs> as his little revenge against that guy. And he told all these stories about all these weird things that people ask for when they get buried. Jesus is telling these disciples, every time you eat bread and drink wine together, I want you to remember me. That's a big ask. That's a big ask. I want you to think about my body. I want you to think about my blood. Every time you do this together, that big ask, only Jesus can ask that, and he can only ask it for a few key reasons. Number one, this call to remember Jesus and his sacrifice, every time we celebrate it in his dying Within 24 hours of his death, Jesus asks us to do this, and it points to three things really clearly. Number one, the divinity of Jesus. This is no human request. If any of you ask me to do something bizarre at your funeral, I don't know that I'll do it. I just, I don't know that I'll do that. But Jesus asks his disciples, as he's entering into the 24-hour period of his death, And this is no human request. This points to the divinity of Jesus. There is no human leader. You think about Nebuchadnezzar, who every time the lyre and the harp and everything was played, everybody was to stop what they were doing and they were to fall on their face and they were to worship him or they would be thrown into a a, a furnace, right? That's a weird request for everybody to go through. He wanted to be a God, he built an image of himself as the image of God, and he wanted everybody to worship it, and he, and he did so in such a way that he threatened death. But Jesus doesn't do that, because this is a, an indication of his divinity. There's no doubt that Jesus was crucified because he claimed to be God in the flesh. They crucified him for blasphemy because they didn't believe that he was divine. But the fact that Jesus says, whenever you eat of this and drink of this, I want you to remember my sacrifice. He's pointing to his divinity. Only God can make that sort of a request of you. And remember that the next time you take the Lord's Supper. Remember that not to do so in a flippant, casual manner but to do so with all the solemnity, all the, all the remembrance that you can of what Jesus is going through. But it also points, number one, to the divinity of Jesus. It also points to the love of God. When you remember Jesus, God wants you to remember that His one and only Son was crucified for you so that you could have a restored relationship with Him. He didn't send a lesser being he didn't create a lesser scapegoat. He didn't, he had all the ability to infuse some animal or even some angelic being. He had all of the opportunity, I guess, to, to make something lesser, but he chose that which was most precious to him that we can't wrap our minds around a Trinitarian relationship, one God in the form of a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all one, not separated. Yet the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit shares this intimate relationship together. And God the Father chose Jesus the Son to be the sacrifice. There was nothing more precious to Him than Jesus. And so when when you remember, when you take the Lord's Supper, you are to remember above all things that God loves you completely. You understand love to some degree on this earth. For those of us who are married, we understand someone who knows most about us and still chooses to love us. That's, that's amazing in itself, right? They know our worst parts and they still choose to love us. That's amazing. But God, who knows you infinitely, completely, perfectly, all of your thoughts, all of your deeds, still loves you so completely, so fully, so perfectly that He did not withhold His one and only Son, but He gave Him for you. And when you see the broken bread and the wine or the juice, it should remind you that God absolutely loves you completely and perfectly. He loves you so completely and perfectly that He pursued you before you ever knew Him. When you were still lost, when you were still rejecting God, when you were still walking in your own sins and you wanted nothing to do with Him, He pursued you. I, I spent years in uh, different therapies and counseling for things that happened to me in my childhood. Uh, therapy process for PTSD, folks who have experienced abuse, called EMDR therapy, which helps you process traumatic memories, and uh, for them to be healthy, and for you to, in a Christian way, to redeem those uh, years of my life, probably four or more years, in regular, consistent counseling to deal with different things that happened to me before I met Christ, I just knew there was a foggy period in my life, from age 6 to 11, that I just didn't really know much about. And in my mid-20s, some of those traumatic events started to take effect, and so I started to get into counseling. And I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable, this is a little bit vulnerable for me, but I share this because I want you to know that in the process of that therapy, in the process of going through the things I went through, I had a dozen, maybe... 15, 16 distinct traumatic memories that took place in that period of my life. And as I was working through it, this process helped me see with crystal clear clarity the things that took place in my life during that time. And, and years of working through all this stuff, I went on a retreat, a seven or eight day retreat to a mountain cabin. And my only goal was to journal and to pray through and to work through each of those 15 or 16 things. And, and in the process of that sort of cathartic experience in my early 40s, late 30s maybe, on this spiritual retreat, on this prayerful retreat, as I went out there and went through this process, I started to see that at the darkest time in my life, sprinkled into those memories were very clear memories of God sending people to me to share the gospel with me. In the midst of that five or six year period, I would remember a neighbor who, even though I had a foul mouth and new language I shouldn't know as a six year old, this kind neighbor would invite me into her house and would uh, feed me and would help me and would uh, give me little Andy's mints and would help me in different ways, but would always say, you know, God loves you, Gibson. Do you know God loves you? And and this family would invite me to vacation Bible school, and I was just a rambunctious little kid, Kool-Aid stains all over my face, and then I, I would just see, uh, you know, the flannel graft thing of God uh, and a cross and Jesus and teaching. I just had these vivid, vivid memories in the midst of the most traumatic, painful, darkest period of my life, memory after memory after memory of how God was pursuing me toward the, to the degree that at the end of this five-year period when the uh, events that were taking place that Satan would have used for evil... It also culminated in an experience of getting invited by another family to an a old-timey kind of revival service and hearing the gospel clearly from the back of this sort of, um, the back of this church. And I can't tell you three things about that service. The only thing I know are two things that the speaker said "Pv" on the back of the wall there. And I could see that because it had a weird P shape. And I also remember at the end of that, the pastor gave an invitation and I felt like I had to go forward and respond. God was so clearly calling me as a child in the midst of the darkest time of my life. God was the most active. It would take years, another decade before I heard the gospel and gave my life to Christ. But I say all that this morning to show you that God pursues those whom He has chosen to redeem and to save. And His pursuit of you before you met Him demonstrates His radical love for you. Now, some of you already thought about a rambunctious kid in your neighborhood that you struggle to love, but but listen, God wants to love sinners through you. But He also loved you as a sinner before you ever gave your life to Christ. He was in full pursuit of you, demonstrating the love of God. <clears throat> the call to remember Jesus and His sacrifice points to His divinity. It points to His love for you his unquenchable, passionate pursuit of you, his love for you that will pursue you, that no sin can separate you from God. There is no sin you've committed that his love demonstrated on the cross. There is no sin that you've committed that he can't forgive you for. Now, when you take the Lord's Supper, that love of God should overwhelm you when you remember Jesus. And thirdly, it should remind you of the faithfulness of God. There's a word in the Old Testament, it's called hesed. The steadfast love of the Lord never, what? It never ceases, it never comes to an end. He pursues you even as his own child when you're wayward and when you're not all there. He's utterly faithful to you, pursuing you. Because if he didn't withhold his own son, why would he withhold anything else from you that is good and beneficial and profitable for you in your relationship with God? He is utterly and completely faithful to his children who have been adopted into his family through the sacrifice of Jesus. When you take the Lord's Supper, when you take that bread and we serve juice, we're not opposed to wine, but there's a lot of kids here. We, we can't give wine to kids, right? And we're going to do this next week, by the way. And in as, as best a way we can, it's not ideal. We've never done this before. We got those sort of pre-packaged things for sanitary purposes. So we're going to hand out those cups and that bread. We tried to do a bring your own communion elements in June and it just didn't go over very well. And so we want to celebrate communion. We don't feel like we should withhold the Lord's Supper even during this time because of all that it means, because of all that we're reminded of today. So we're going to do that next weekend. And it's my hope that when you when you come together next week that you come ready to remember Jesus. Remember that he loves you. Remember that he is God's only son, divine, and that he is faithful to you. If you're struggling to remember, if your faith is struggling, there is a spiritual discipline of remembering. It is something that you have to make yourself do. Psalm 42, David writes, My tears have been my food day and night. They say to me all day long, Where is God? And he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I remember that I used to go into the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember Are you struggling in your faith? Remember. Remember how he reached you. Remember how he pursued you. Remember how you committed that sin and you were so ashamed you didn't even want to confess it. You didn't want to come to church. You didn't want to see any of your friends. You ignored their calls and texts because you just thought you sinned so bad. And then finally, at a breaking point, the conviction was too great, the, the relationship with God was so severed, you thought, that He could never forgive you, and then you, you had that Psalm 51 moment where He forgave you and you confessed your sin and He washed you as white as snow and He cleansed you, though your sins were like crimson, they became like scarlet, and He purified you and He gave you a right spirit within you and He, he forgot your sin. And He did it not just once, not just twice, but He does it over and over and over again. That if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Remember those moments if your faith is struggling. If you need restoration, remember. Read Psalm 63. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will again praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy and my soul clings to you. In the quietest moments of your life, tell yourself to remember. Remember his faithfulness. Remember his goodness. Remember his love. Remember his mercy. And look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity we had to hear it. We pray that you would, as you sent out the rain and the snow to water the earth and to accomplish the purpose for for which you sent it, we thank you that here and now your word is doing its work among us that you are speaking, that you are moving, that you are convicting, that you are teaching. We pray that you would have us to apply the word that you are speaking to us individually today and corporately as well. That within this covenant body of Christ followers who are walking together, we pray that you would take this word and that you would use it to encourage us that you love us of your faithfulness, and help us to remember it and not only remember but to look forward to that future day when we shall celebrate the consummation of the redemption of all of these ages. That the people for whom you have purchased for yourself will come together in this celebration. That there will be no more tears and no more pain and And this body of sin will be done away with. And we will have this future glory with you. We long for that day, Lord Jesus. We long for that day and we ask you, Jesus, to come. And if you should, tarry, let every time we eat the bread and drink the wine, let every time we celebrate it together, let us remember and look forward.